We're going to read from God's Word. At Sidile, we hold that the Bible is God's Word. And as it's read faithfully and taught, it's God speaking to us. So we're going to read from Acts 23, starting at sentence 1. As we, as we get up to the reading, as we uh, come toward the end of the book of Acts, we cover a few chapters at a time and focus in on one part of the story. And we finished last week in the city of Ephesus where Paul had preached the gospel and it had turned the city upside down. And so we start uh, uh, this week uh, following his journey beginning at Ephesus there. Ephesus was one of the major cities in the Roman Empire. It was uh, the place where the temple of Artemis or Diana as it was uh, in the Latin was, one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world. So it was a major city. But after that, uh, Paul moves on from there. Uh, he heads up uh, as we move north uh, through to Troas. From there, he heads on to Macedonia and visits the churches that had already been planted in that area. I uh, keep you on going. That's the next one through. Uh, so visiting through all the churches in the area of Macedonia, encouraging them. He moves all the way down to Greece and visits uh, the church that has been growing there as well as in Corinth. Leaving from there, he heads back up through Macedonia, uh, back out to Troas, past ASOS, a bit of online shopping, thank you very much, heads down to Mytilene uh, and lands in Miletus and this was the story uh, that we looked at a number of weeks ago where Paul gathers all the elders of the Ephesian church, they come down to the city of Miletus, uh, Gav spoke on this as he talked on eldership for our church uh, and he gathers all the leaders from that area and from Asia Minor and tells them what it's really about to be an elder in the church but he farewells them as well because he knows that he is probably going to his death as he heads back to Jerusalem. So he tells them all these things knowing that he will never see them again. And he heads on from there uh, to Lower Asia and then heads out going through again. So we go through one more and one again. And heading out to, uh, to Cyrus, uh, Tyre and Sidon, heads down uh, through Caesarea uh, where we met the centurion a, little, a few chapters earlier and then finally ends up in Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, he's preaching at the temple uh, about Jesus and it causes such a stir that there is a riot. The tribune or the commander of the area, who's probably the equivalent rank of a major uh, or a colonel in the modern army, at that point catches wind of the fact that there is a riot going on, goes down there and intervenes and then decides to call the Jewish council together under his supervision as a Roman authority in the area. And that's where we pick the story up in chapter 23 in sentence 1. Paul is standing before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, the very council that tried Jesus and wanted to have him murdered. And now Paul stands before them to make his defense. And we pick up the story in chapter 23, sentence 1. Paul looked intently at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience until this day. But the high priest Ananias ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You are sitting there judging me according to the law and in violation of the law, are you ordering me to be struck? And those standing nearby said, do you dare revile God's high priest? I did not know, brothers, Paul said, that it was the high priest, for it is written, you must not speak evil of the ruler of your people. When Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. 
I am being judged here because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees affirm them all. The shouting grew loud, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees, uh, Pharisees' party got up and argued vehemently, We find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? When the dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down, rescue him from them, and bring him to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse, neither to eat nor to drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. These men went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we, might eat, that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. So now you, along with the Sanhedrin, make a request to the commander that he bring him down to you as if he were going to investigate his case more thoroughly. However, before he gets near, we are ready to kill him. But the son of Paul's sister, hearing about their ambush, came and entered the barracks and reported it to Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander because he has something to report to him. So he took him, brought him to the commander and said, The prisoner Paul called, uh, the prisoner Paul called me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, led him aside and inquired privately, What is it that you have to report to me? The Jews, he said, have agreed to bring Paul. Uh, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow, as though they were going to hold a somewhat more careful inquiry about him. Don't let them persuade you, because there are more than forty men arranging to ambush him, men who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they kill him. Now they are ready, waiting for a commitment from you. So the commander dismissed the young man and instructed him, don't tell anyone that you have informed me about this. He summoned two of his centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen and go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Also provide mounts so that they can put a pall on them and bring him safely to Felix the governor. This is the word of God. Well, good afternoon. My name is Gav. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you here. We do hope you enjoy your time today with us here at City Light. Hope you had a good week. You had to do it because it's spring. How good is spring, right? Yeah, yeah. I love that. Great. Everyone's ready to go. Cool. Um, I love spring. I've decided just this week that it's my favorite time of the year. I've decided that just this week. And um, it's, the weather's amazing and the flowers in bloom. Um, just this week, I, uh, I was walking home with my son, and uh, we saw those little flowers. You know the honeysuckle flowers? You know, those, you know they're cool. And yeah, you can actually, thanks Esther, um, you, can, you, can <laughs> you can pull the middle out and you suck on them. It tastes like honey. Anyone know that? Incredible. It blew my son's mind. Like, he's like, oh my gosh. Now he's asking for honeysuckles in his lunch. <laughs> and I'm like, bud, they're not food, man. Like, it's fine. Anyway, uh, he loves honeysuckles a lot. Um, Anyway, I'm instilling love for flowers in my son nice and early, uh, which I like. Anyway, uh, we're going to um, look at God's Word, Jez read for us, um, the author of all things. And uh, let me pray before we look at God's Word together. Let's talk to God. <clears throat> uh, Lord, uh, we are gathered here uh, to be your people, um, to hear from you uh, the love of our soul, 
the one who feeds us, the one who uh, guides us, the one who is near and who is intimate. Um, We want to pray that as we gather here, that you would uh, speak to us again, uh, that we would not just hear um, words, but we'd actually hear you, your voice, addressing each of our hearts. Uh, Lord, feed our souls this afternoon, we ask. Show us more of yourself. Uh, Help us to fall more in love with you for who you are. Uh, We want to pray that wherever we're at this afternoon, whether we know you, we don't, whether we're cold, whether we're we're on fire for you, that you would address us and you'd help us to just sit now and be still before you. Help us to be be still and put all distractions out of our mind and for you to address us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, bless our time, we ask. We pray in our King's name. Amen. As you you know, and I speak about this too much probably, but um, I have three beautiful children, uh, Jet Inni Savannah. Or, as Savannah likes to be known, Savvy P. It's, it's a bit more ghetto, a bit more gangster. She's three, and she likes to bring the, the realness to my family. So, uh, Savvy P. And I think it actually came from Rach. So, thank you for that, Rach. I appreciate that. Um, Jet is seven, Indy is five, Savvy P is three. Uh, all with very different, strong personalities uh, and different temperaments. And it's lots of fun watching them as they grow and develop and change. And uh, my three-year-old, uh, Sav, she, um, she looks up to her older siblings and wants to copy them, but often doesn't hit the mark. Um, so uh, with Jet and Indy, my two older ones, they love knock-knock jokes at the moment, right? And so they're into that, that phase. And so you always go, who's there? And they'll tell you a little joke. But Sav wants in, but she doesn't get how they work. So she'll say something like, hey, Daddy, knock-knock. And I go, yes, Sav, who's there? And she'll say, stinky Daddy. <laughs> right? And I'll say, okay, stinky Daddy who? And she looks at me like... No, that's the joke. I called you stinky, right? There's no who. This is you're stinky. That's funny. That's how Sav rolls. And um, my daughter, Indy, is a bit similar. You know, uh, my two older kids are perceptive. They're like sponges. They want to hear everything. They want to copy all what we do. And uh, so Indy's funny. She's five, and she'll often just slip a phrase that she's heard into in a conversation like it's just normal, but it doesn't fit. So the other day, Katie said to her, hey, Indy, how you feel? How are you doing today? She said, I am feeling something starting with H. That's what she says, right? And then so into it, Katie will go, okay, um, I don't know, happy? And she's like, no, it's horrendous. <laughs> As a big smile on her face. And uh, it's funny watching Indu do that. It's very cute. Um, but, but I can see where they get it from. As I've mentioned before, my wife does a similar thing. We laugh a lot at this. She gets the phrases mixed up often. You know, those common phrases. She mishes, mashes them together. The other day, we were talking about her dad coming over and giving me a hand and doing something. And she's like, no, no, he's just written off his books. I'm like, whose books? <laughs> Is he a book? And she's like, oh. I, I, and she merged this, the saying of, you know, he's written it off and then putting the book or the one. And that's what often happens a lot with my wife. And we laugh a lot how, how she gets things confused. And uh, I, think, um, I think when we think about it, sometimes we can be a little, a little similar to my family. We often use phrases and, and languages and, 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 uh, and words that we don't often know the full meaning of what we're really saying. And we throw these around a lot, and I know I have as well. We say things often like, you know, um, let me give you a few, like, you know, God is sovereign, or God is in control, or Jesus is Lord over all, or the common one we throw around to people, you know, Romans eight twenty eight, God works for you good, it's all cool. And uh, I know I've used these phrases in Bible verses before, but have we ever really stopped and thought, what are we saying about that? What are we saying when we say Jesus is in control? Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is Lord of all things. Do we know what that means? Now let, me, let me be super clear as we, we dive into this, um, that, that here at City Light, uh, we hold to God being sovereign over all things. Uh, we do that in our membership and Connect course. Uh, we're a church that holds to that. That's a God's sovereign rule. 
We set the Bible and who God is. But again, what, what does that mean and how does that play out? And what does it look like? Um, I've, been, I've been a pastor for over 10 years now and uh, I love to sit and to listen and talk to people and uh, hear what's going on in their lives and care for them. And, and here's a question I often get asked. Um, if God is in control, why do bad things happen? If God is in control, why do bad things happen? If God is good, why is there suffering in the world? Can God be both good and in control? Or is he good and not sovereign? Or sovereign and not good? David Attenborough, you know, the famous um, uh, uh, animal expert, he's got these TV shows that are amazing. Have you ever heard him, I don't know if you've heard him, ever interviewed about religion and Jesus and uh, what he thinks? And I've heard him say this a few times where uh, he says he's an atheist because he refuses to believe in a God that has the power to change the suffering of people and does nothing about it. His, his example would be, you know, a boy in Africa who gets a disease that is curable in a Western country and that, 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 that child dies. How can a good God who is sovereign see that child and do nothing about that? Therefore, Attenborough says there is no God. As Attenborough goes. And you think of that and go, yeah, wow, he's got a point there, right? And this is where the sovereignty of God and God's control really hits the road. Today, we are going to look at, uh, dive into this big topic of sovereignty. And um, uh, as Jesus read for us in Acts 23, we're going to read of the God who's in control of Paul, over his circumstances, over life. We're going to see through this passage, and again, as we have in our book of Acts, that God is the one who calls the shots. He's the one who is Lord. He's the one in control of all things. And as, as we look at this today, I want to try and show you what the God of the Bible is like. I want to show you what he is like and what it means to live in light of his sovereignty and his rule and his control and how do we relate to him and each other in light of that truth. Now, I'm going to walk through uh, uh, chapter 23 quite quickly with you and spend some time on this at the end, but here's my three observations that will help you track uh, sort of where we're going. Uh, the Lord is with him, the plan is foiled, and the sovereign Lord. Uh, we're, we're motoring now through the book of Acts. We're in the book of Acts ever since, um, I think, almost the start of the year, pretty much. And we're working through chapter by chapter, up to chapter 23 today. And uh, we're sort of jumping big bits now. And uh, as Jess said, we were in Ephesus last week, chapter 19. Today in 23, uh, how did you get here? Basically, Paul was in on his third missionary trip, floating around Europe, uh, Asia Minor. And uh, he had this sense that God was wanting to go to Jerusalem, back to where it all began for Paul. And he felt a calling to go there. And so uh, he goes, even though he knows it's going to cause him a lot of pain and a lot of trouble. Uh, but we get this amazing phrase that he, that he speaks of in Acts 20, 24, which is on the screen behind me. This is what Paul says about going to Jerusalem. He says, um, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul arrived in Jerusalem. He gets there. And he's welcomed by the other apostles, and they celebrate what God has done with saving many Gentiles' lives. But as soon as he gets there, um, some of the Jewish people see him. They don't like him. They see what he's done throughout the rest of the world. And they cause a big riot to kick up. They make lies about him. And it says there in chapter 22 uh, that uh, he's taken, and uh, he's, almost, he's almost ripped apart by the crowd. They want to kill him. And, uh, but at the last minute, the Roman guards step in, and they save him. Uh, and then a little bit later on, he asks to address the crowd, and this crowd's going wild, and he tries to address it. It stirs up even more. And then eventually, Paul is taken into custody by the Roman guards. He's about to be flogged, and he's in chains. And then he says, this is how you treat Roman citizens. Normally, a Roman citizen will be given a trial and, and declared guilty before they're arrested and put into jail. 
And so they get really worried and they say, well, let's try and work out what's going on with, with you and the Jews. Let's bring you guys together. And so we, we land on chapter 23. Paul then addresses this Jewish Sanhedrin. And he's up there and he stands in front of them and sentence uh, 1 to 5, uh, which we just had read for us. Paul's there and he says, look, basically I've done what God has called me to do. And at this, uh, the high priest calls people to near Paul to backhand Paul and give him a whack in the mouth and he, and he gets it. And then Paul responds, and I love this response from Paul. Uh, you very rarely see the good guys in the Bible get fired up and aggressive. Love that. Um, and he does it in sentence 3. He says this, he says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Um, yeah, I haven't used that saying before, but you whitewashed wall. You are sitting there uh, judging me according to the law, in the violation of the law, and you're ordering me to be struck. Good response, a bit of aggression from Paul. I like that. Um, but then what's interesting is, as Paul says it, he realizes who he said it to, or he's shown who he said it to, and he, um, he actually says, sorry. Sentence five, which is really interesting. He says this after he said it. Um, he said, I don't know, brother. I did not know, brothers, that it was a chief priest I was talking to. Uh, for it's written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I think a little side thing. I really love here that Paul has been treated badly, almost ripped apart. He's been you know, put into jail for no real reason. And uh, as soon as he steps out of, uh, a, a bit out of line and realizes what he said is wrong, he repents of it and says, I'm sorry. Even though he's been treated horribly and unjustly, if he stuffs up, he'll admit it straight away. I think it's a really cool example um, of, of how to respond when you're treated badly. Anyway, it keeps going on, and uh, it's shown what a shambles this thing is. Um, Paul uh, steps up and says, well, you know, I'm here because basically I believe the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, the, the, the Jews that were gathered there in the Sanhedrin, half of them were the, were the Pharisees who held the resurrection, and half were the Sadducees who didn't hold the resurrection. And because they didn't hold the resurrection, what were they? Anyone? Sadducee. Oh, come on. They're the best Bible joke we've got, right? The Sadducees are sad because they don't believe in the resurrection. So the Sadducee. Anyway, hold on to that. You can use that if you want to later on. I'll let you. Anyway, they had no hope of the resurrection, no hope of heaven, because they believed that this life was it for the Sadducees. So Paul throws out their resurrection card, and then what happens is the Pharisees and Sadducees who were on their team to get Paul, they turn on one another, and now it's a sort of three-way fight going on in the Sanhedrin. And it's all, all gone crazy. Sentence 10 says that the dispute became violent. The commander feared that Paul be torn apart by them and the order of the troops to go down, rescue him from there and bring him back into the barracks. So Paul's shown this is a shambles of this place, what's going on here. So Paul would have been confronted these Jewish people by himself, would have been quite, quite scared that he may be killed and torn apart and he's there and he's all alone. If we read sentence 11, he's actually not alone. This is really cool. Look at this. So the following night, Paul was in jail, in chains probably. It says, The Lord stood by him and said, Have courage. For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify about me in Rome. He's not alone. The Lord appears and encourages him. Uh, I'm, a, I'm the sort of person who loves relationships and friendships. I'm a quite an extrovert like that. They're really important to me. Uh, they're, they're certain friendships in my life are what, me, what keep me going um, in life. That's how God, God's wired me. And uh, you know when you have good friends and good support around you um, that are close and supportive, you feel strong, you feel secure, you feel like you can take on anything. Uh, and this is what I experienced in my friends, but especially with my friendship or my relationship, which is, you know, my wife is my best friend. We, I experienced a lot with her. Uh, she's the most amazing friend. Uh, I often say that if Katie and I are a real team and solid and tight and going really well, that I can do anything and achieve anything with her support. 
Uh, she's, also so, she's always so supportive and positive and optimistic. And you know, I'll, I'll come home and say, oh, I feel like this is not going to work. or This is going to be horrible. It's not going to work and whatever. And she's like, no, you can do it. And supports me amazingly. Um, it's often, it's often happens on um, Friday afternoon or Saturday night. I often go through the five stages of grief when I write a sermon. So it's like, I love it. I hate it. It's not going to work. It's going to be the best thing in the world. And I go through this whole roller coaster of emotion. Kate's like, what's wrong with you? It's going to be fine. And uh, I feel like that every single week. And it's often funny. Um, I mentioned last week that I, I don't I really love public speaking. And um, it's funny. When you're up here at the front, you can see everybody. Like, you think I can't see you? I can see you, right? I can see you. And so it's often you read people's body language when you're at the front. And so uh, I, I get really put off. You know, if you look at someone and they're, nodding off. I'm like, I must be so boring. I've got to go faster and whatever. It's really hard. I get, so don't fall asleep. I can see, right? I can, I'll name you. Um, but, um, but often it's great when I'm up here speaking, Katie's sitting in the congregation. I always say she'd be leaning right forward going like this. Yeah, this is great. You know, keep going and, you know, smiling at me and going, yeah, preaching, you're great. And like, it's, a really, it's, a, it's super encouraging because that's the sort of friend and support that she is. You know, we read here in sentence 11, Paul's feeling super alone, but and he's quite tired and emotionally drained. He would have been scared. He been doubting. Why did he come back to Jerusalem? Why was he here? Uh, you know, uh, the first thing Jesus says to him is, have courage. You don't say have courage to someone who's doing great for you. So he's clearly struggling. He's in jail for no reason, not sure what's going to happen to him. He's been treated horribly by his own people. He apologizes for, for being rude, and now he's still in jail. Surely he must be feeling a little, a little tired, a little weary questioning what's going on. You know, he's in the midst of this uncertainty and justice, but he's never alone. The Lord Jesus is with him and he has not forgotten him. And more than that, his current circumstances are all part of God's bigger plan for him. Sentence 11 says, you've testified about me in Jerusalem, you will go to Rome, Paul. You know, Paul, like, he's, he's in chains, in jail. You will go to Rome. He's like, I'm in Jerusalem. How do I get out of this thing? But God's saying, Jesus is saying, you will go to Rome. You aren't going to stay here. You know, just as we read in Acts 20, 24, his aim is to finish the race, testify to Jesus, and he's going to do it, and he hasn't been left alone in this task by Jesus, his friend who's beside him. And I love, I love that this is not only the, the truth for Paul, but it's also the truth for us if you're a follower of Jesus. We are, we are not alone. We have, we have a God with us. We have the promised Holy Spirit the, the, the third member of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, is with you, with us, in us. Who empowers, who leads, who gifts, who comforts. Love of the Holy Spirit is called the, the, the counselor and the comforter, what Jesus calls him in John 14, John 16. With this promise from God that he will never leave nor forsake us, no matter what the circumstances are or what our situation looks like. I know about you, but I often feel like, has God left me? Why am I here? What's going on? promise is that God the Holy Spirit is with you. I love that in Genesis 1, it's the Holy Spirit who hovers over the water. The Spirit of God hovered over the water. That same Spirit that hovered over the water lives in you. He's there with us. And I wonder if you ever stopped and pondered this. I love that idea of, you know, in Matthew 28 where Jesus says, go and make disciples, give them a task, but then he says, but I'll be with you to the end of the age. He has not left us. And this thought, this truth of God's Spirit being in us is meant to be a comforting thought, a comforting truth, a fear-crushing truth, a worry and anxiety-breaking truth. We do not need to fear because we have the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit with us. I am with you and I will never leave you nor will I ever forsake you. That's massive. 
And I love that as we try and look at this idea of sovereignty and God's sovereignty and his control and his power and his rule over all things and his authority, it can often feel like God is impersonal and this distant being up in heaven just calling the shots like that. But here we get straight away that God is reminding us that he is personal, that he is near, that he is intimate, that he cares about each of us, and he has even numbered the hairs on our heads. And he is both. That he is both. He is close. And he empowers by the Holy Spirit. But I want to keep moving on in this chapter. Uh, Paul is in jail. The Jewish people are angry. And we read that the, in sentence 12 to 50, 15, that 40 men, 40 men make a vow that they will not eat until Paul, they kill Paul. That's their vow. That's how serious they are about trying to kill this guy. And they make a plan that, you know, tell the high priest to call Paul back to the Sanhedrin on his way. They'll ambush him and then kill him. But again, God steps in. God steps in. We read somehow Paul's nephew hears about the plan. He tells Paul. Paul says to his nephew, go and tell the commander. Tells the commander. Commander believes him and, and then uh, tells about the plan. He believes him and tells Paul's nephew to uh, not believe, uh, not, to, uh, not to tell anyone else what's going on. And he doesn't. But a lot of things have to happen here for Paul uh, to be safe. I wonder if you've ever, ever heard a story that someone has told you and you think, yeah, come on, as if that's true. Uh, my brother often tells a good story. He's a good storyteller. And uh, he often finds himself in really odd situations. And uh, I love hearing him tell the story. And he tells this story um, about 10 years ago. And he and I were at home, and uh, my dad was there. My dad just had an operation on his knee or his hip. And so he's quite immobile. And one afternoon we were there, and uh, he said to, to my brother and I, Anthony's five years older than me, he said to, me, he said to us, uh, boys, you know, would, would, mon- would one of you uh, actually mind cutting my toenails for me? Oh, yuck. You know what? Feet are disgusting. Like, they're the worst part of the body, I reckon. Um, but, but my dad's feet were just even worse. They were horrendous. Oh, hey, like, his toes were like claws, basically. You know, disgusting. So I just, like I said, I'm out. No way. Like, <laughs> I love you, Dad, but that is too, too much. Um, so I, I just refused, being a bit of a germaphobe that I am. And uh, my brother said, being the nice guy that he was, to look, okay, I'll take it on. I'll take one for the team. And so he did. Anyway. He started cutting my dad's toenail. So I cut the first toenail, these big clippers. Second toenail, he cuts my dad's toenail. And he cuts it. And now clipping flies into the air. And then, up in my brother's mouth. Straight in his mouth, down his throat. Swallowed. Yuck. I remember telling me that. I was like, just going, I was dry reaching, going, that is disgusting. Swish, right in his mouth, right? Nothing but, nothing but net. Straight in. Straight in. And, and my brother tells his story, I'm like, no way. And he's like, yep, that went straight in. And now, you know, I think a lot of things have to go against my brother for that to happen to him, right? The angle of the toenail, the, in the air, the wind trajectory, and his mouth open. Now, a lot of things are going to go against my brother for that to happen to him in that moment. They really have to. We read this story of, of the Apostle Paul and these 40 men who plan to kill him. And a lot of things have to go Paul's way for him to get out of this, a string of unlikely events. Let me, let me summarize. A boy overheard the plot. This boy happened to know Paul and be a relative of Paul. The boy had enough courage to go to the Roman centurion guarding Paul. The centurion took him to the commander to tell him, and the commander believed the boy and prepared guards to take Paul safely out of the city. A bunch of things had to happen there that are seemingly quite odd and strange, and out of the blue, 
for, for Paul to be saved. Highly unlikely, but that's what happened. You know, Jesus said to Paul, you are going to Rome. And that was that. No ambush can stand against him, no chains, no jail can stand against him. Until Paul got to Rome, he was basically immortal. Jesus would see that Paul would get to Rome. And you just see God's sovereign hand in this situation. He is guiding every single event. He's sovereign of the destiny of his people. He told Paul he would survive and get to Rome, and he would. He would not be killed by this ambush. He would get there. And here we see uh, God even uses a young man, Paul's nephew, and a believing commander to do that. Because God is the sovereign one. When he says something, when he promises something, it will happen. Because he's the power to rule over all things. That's who God is. And the Bible shows this again and again and again. But let me, let me just, just keep going the story. My third and final point, um, God is the sovereign Lord over all. The command does not stop the ambush from happening. Paul is transported safely and eventually gets to Rome under Roman guard. Jesus said what happened. And have a look at what happens. Just send us 23 and 24 on the screen behind me. He, the commander, summoned two of the centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers ready with 70 cavalry and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at 9 tonight. And also, and provide mounts, also provide mounts so they can take Paul on them and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So Paul gets, not only this, Paul gets 200, 200 soldiers, 70 cavalry, 200 spearmen, and he gets a horse. So he gets safely to where he wants to go. It's not like he sneaks out the back. He's got guards now to take him to where he wants to go. Because God says this, he's sovereign over that. The commander writes a letter to Felix. Felix says, yeah, great, bring Paul on. We'll, we'll look after him here and we'll, we'll, get this, we'll get this all sorted out. Then at the very end of Sentence 35, what happens is, which is even more crazy, Paul is, it says there, Paul is kept under guard in Herod's palace. Now, being a Roman citizen and not being charged guilty, he's, he's been looked after in the king's palace, in a room. He's gone from being in a jail somewhere ripped apart to living in the king's palace under guard. That's crazy. God is totally in control of this whole situation. says, Paul, you'll get to Rome, and I'll make it there by having so many guards around you, and you can also have a, uh, have a nice little uh, refreshment in the king's palace on the way. You know, what a ride for Paul. He enters Jerusalem, almost killed, almost ripped apart. He's arrested. Jesus appears and says, have courage. He says, you will go to Rome. His nephew appears, this, hears of this plan, uh, steps in, rescues him, and gets a guard, a, a guard a ride to Felix's place. Nothing or no one will stop the sovereign Lord from succeeding. And again and again and again, see in the book of Acts, this happens. Jesus says in Acts 1.8 that you'll be our witnesses to the ends of the earth. And Rome is the beginning of the ends of the earth. And Paul will get there because Paul is God's instrument to take the good news of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And God is sovereign of the destiny of his people. We have seen this again and again. And this is why the book of Acts is often commonly referred to as the Acts of the risen Lord Jesus. That's what it's called. The sovereign Lord will build his church. His purpose is in this world is for people to, to come to know him through the power of the church and empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and make disciples. And nothing will stop their purposes. Not persecution, not death, not anything will stop their purposes. He will build his church. And we see that again and again and again. He is the sovereign Lord over all. You know, the, the, the book of Acts and the Bible, again, show God to be who he is, eternal, infinite, supreme, has power, authority, he is good. That's who the Bible and Acts show him to be, God to be. And my purpose as a pastor here is to show you who God is, the God of the Bible, 
We want to be a church and a people who worship God as he reveals himself to be. But I also want to say, as we do that, as we understand who God is and his power and his glory and his character, and we work hard to ground our faith in his character, this prepares you and arms you for whatever circumstances come your way. For the rest of our time, for the next five, ten minutes or so, I want to show you how understanding God's character, and especially him being sovereign over all things, affects our lives. I want to really apply this and push this out a bit further for us. See, firstly, if you hold to, and you see who God is, and his sovereignty over all things, I so believe you can hold to, to promises like, when God says, do not worry, do not be anxious, do not fear, do not be afraid, but rather trust me and come to me, rely on me. You can hold on to that so tightly, because he's a sovereign one. Now, if he wasn't sovereign, if he said, don't worry, you're like, well, what would you know? You're not in control anyway. Because he is sovereign over all things, when he says, do not worry, do not get anxious, but come to me, you can say, yes, because you're the sovereign one. Because you're in control of everything. Do you know in the Bible that God repeats close to 100 times the phrases like, do not be afraid, do not worry, do not be scared, but come to me. Over 100 times. Why? Because he knows we're afraid. He knows we're fearful. He knows what we're like. I love Matthew 6, 26 to 31, where Jesus is speaking, and he says in the Sermon of the Mount, he says, do not be worried. He says, but rather, he says, look at the birds of the air. Look how I feed them. Look at the lilies of the field. Look how I clothe them on all the splendor. They are so cared for. And then he says, but I care for you more than I care for you more than I care for them. I love you more than I love them. Why do you worry? love this promise. If God is sovereign, I can trust him when he says, I've got it, do not worry. I can come to him for help. Secondly, if he's sovereign over all things, we can be thankful in all circumstances, knowing that all things are a gift from his hand. I can genuinely believe that all good things are from my Lord, and I can say with a heart full of thankfulness, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, as Psalm 106 says. Thirdly, if we believe that God is sovereign, there is no such thing as chance, luck, or fate. That's not true. Events and circumstances are controlled not by an impersonal force or being we don't know, but rather controlled and looked after and and guided by my heavenly dad who loves me like I, I don't understand. And who's not against me, but who is for me and is the one who sees the whole life, my whole life, my whole circumstances from every angle. He's outside of time. He sees everything. And I can trust him. And I know for me, knowing that my dad, my heavenly dad, is like this, it is such a comfort that he has, he has it in the palm of his hand. Even when I feel like life is crazy and out of control and I'm suffering and whatever, God's like, I've got you, Gav. I've still got it. I've still got it in my hand. Fourthly, and lastly, it relates to this point, we know that God is sovereign, when we are known and loved by this supreme being, it's such a comfort knowing that he's in control, that he's my dad. And I, when we say things like Romans 8.28, that God works for good of those who love us, or love, love me, this is, there's so much more depth to this now. In all things, he works for the good of those who, who, who love him. So if God is working in all things, so everything, every little thing, 
every little little thing, every big thing. God is working in everything because he is sovereign, has the power to. I can believe him when he says he's working for my good. Romans 8 has this whole new weight to it. I love what he says in sentence 31 and 32. He says, if God is for us, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And it's a rhetorical question saying, well, no one can. Nothing can be against us. Because we know the king, the sovereign one. So nothing can be against me compared to this God that's on my side who I can call dad. It's a sovereign Lord who sits on his throne, who clothes the lilies of the air, the birds of the field. He even, uh, the lilies of the, lilies of the bird, field. Well, I was confused. The lilies of the field, the birds of the air. He even says that not a sparrow falls from the tree without him knowing. It's a crazy thought. That's how sovereign he knows what's going on. And he says, if he is for you, nothing can be against you. And he pushes further and he says, he, God, who didn't even spare his own son, but gave him, gave him up for us all, how will not he also, along with him, give us all things? And he's saying here, if God has done the biggest thing in giving us his son, he'll do everything else because he saved you and redeemed you, not left you alone. He's brought you into his family and said, I'll keep looking after you as a good father does every single day. Can you see the blessing and the benefit from knowing who God is as the sovereign Lord? For me, this is such a comfort and a promise to hold to in my life. I can cling to this, knowing that whatever happens in my life, it's not no one's in control. My sovereign dad's in control saying, I've got to give I love you. Trust me. But let me throw something else at you, because if we're going to survive as followers of Jesus... We need to have a robust faith, especially when dark times come. What about God's sovereignty in our suffering, God's control in dark times? It happens in our world and, the, and, and, to, and to us. What do we do with that? Some of us can say things like, well, maybe God is not sovereign when bad things happen. You know that, that line I said before, he, he, he's sovereign but not good, or good but not sovereign. Someone, someone who I really love and who is very, very dear to me um, uh, used to go to church, uh, and uh, they suffered quite severely, and with, with many, many years of darkness and depression and um, attempts on their own life. And uh, and I remember talking to them, and they and they used to come to church, and they no longer do, and they actually hate God with a passion. And they said, and this person said to me, "Gav, if God loves me, why would He put me through this?" And this, as I said, this person professes to hate God and it breaks my heart. And I pray for this person every day. And this is where I live a lot of the time is I sit with many people who are, who are hurting, who, are, who are just have faced some horrendous evil done to them. And I listen and I walk side by side with them. I try and jump in the mud with them in their pain. And we wrestle through this question. What do you do with this question? You know, there's been books and books and books and conferences done on this topic and, you know, I'm just going to try and throw some things out here and, and scratch the surface. But I think this is so worth digging at because the sad reality is that at some time or another, you will face suffering. Jez said at the end of the service at 11 a.m., he said you're either, well, he had a quote or maybe it's him, but he said you're either, either just come through suffering or you're in it right now or you're better start in it now. You were somewhere in that, that, that line. Which is sad because we live in a fallen, broken world, right? And the question is, what will we do when it hits? Will your faith stand up to it? Will you run from God or will you run to God? 
about two years ago, I was in hospital. I got struck with a really weird syndrome, I guess, called, called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is where the body attacks itself. And uh, I was, um, within 48 hours, I was paralyzed from the waist down, um, basically a paraplegic, and uh, from nowhere, having the flu. And I'm being in hospital, an RPA hospital, not sure what was happening away from my family. I was scared. I was being told from nurses that they'd seen people die from what I had. They'd seen people not recover ever from what I had and never walk again. And I remember being, being in the hospital in RPA and just feeling so scared. And, I, and my response was to run from God. I remember, having, I remember having my red Bible that I read every morning, my red Bible, and I had it on the bench beside me and I was choosing actively not to touch it. I did not want anything to do with a God that was, that was not helping me in this moment. And, and, I, and I ran from And I really believed that it was the prayers of you guys that sustained me through that season like, two years ago. And I was pastor here. And I ran. And I could not see what God was doing. And I didn't like it. My son had his fifth birthday while I was in hospital, which broke my heart. I hated that. I was not there for his birthday, for his party. I remember him coming in and opening his presents, and I was in a wheelchair. I'm thinking, what is this? And I remember, I was just thinking, where is, where is God in this? And I ran and I blamed him. But the crazy thing is, I look back on that time and um, it's crazy that I recovered within four weeks. I was running within six weeks. And I remember going back to the hospital and they said, look, oh, we're not even sure you had it because you recovered that fast. We're not sure what's going on, but something crazy is happening. God has answered prayers. And he has taught me so much through that little season. I would say it's one of the most... Um, uh, one of the biggest seasons of my life that I look back and go, wow, I learned so much there through that season. I ran from God, but he didn't leave me. He didn't run from me. I couldn't see his hands in it, but he's like, "Gow, I'm still here. You know, hopefully you know me well enough and know that I'm, that I'm quite an empathetic person who, who cares a lot, and I want to be super gentle and compassionate, as I say, sort of keep going on this, because I know a lot of you really, really struggle with um, and it's and with suffering and uh, in that and it's raw and it's hard. But uh, but I've been thinking a lot about this and I've been wanting to talk about this for a long time. This this topic um, because I would say it's more unloving for me if I did not speak about this and show you the God who loves you and show you His sovereignty on this. You know we we are finite beings. You know, we're, talk, we are, we're talked about in, in Ecclesiastes and Matthew that we are but like grass that come for a time and then blow away again, which is not a nice thing to hear, but that's what the Bible talks about with us. Our time on earth is short. Our knowledge is, 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 is short. Uh, our knowledge is limited and our insight is limited because we are finite beings. We don't know everything. We don't see or understand all things, but we worship a God who, who knows all things, who does, who's outside of time and has a plan and a purpose. You know, sometimes, and actually a lot of times in life, I feel, we feel, we think, what is going on? God, I don't understand. I don't like it. I don't get it. I don't want it. What the Lord has taught me, my Heavenly Dad has taught me, as I've gone through many, many painful times and seen those who I love go through many, many painful times, is the key things we've got to hold on to is who is God and what He's like. And that's a really simple thing to say, but I just want to, I want to just push on this for a second who God is and what he is like. This is so important because when, we, when we're in a, a situation where we don't like what's happening, our understanding of God gets skewed. We've got to cling to who he is and what he is like. We've got to keep knowing who he is and what he is like as revealed in the Bible as, as, and, and, and what we know in our minds, not in our experience. See, God reveals himself to be gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. 
And he cannot or will not operate outside of that character. It's what he's like. You know, one thing I've started to talk to people about a lot recently is when this question of God's goodness comes up, I've started to, and I've started to encourage people to do, is to, um, when people say, is God good? What is he like? And, you know, when suffering comes, we often think that God is this mean, harsh God who just uses his people like a pawns in a chess game. I often say, let's, let's go to the Bible for a second. Let's look at the Gospels. Let's just study Jesus. Let's do a character study of Jesus. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the final revelation, as Hebrews says, of God. And the final and most full revelation of what God is like. And so when I see Jesus, open the gospel, I see him. I see him loving the poor, loving the lowly, loving the needy, loving the weak, loving the sinful, loving the broken. I love the story of Jesus and the, and the, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well. And no one loves her, no one cares her, no one even talks to her. And Jesus goes and he, and he speaks to her and he gives her eternal life. You read of Zacchaeus and he has to climb up a tree because no one likes him. and he must, Everyone hates him. Jesus loves the guy. You see the blind beggars on the side of the road. That everyone says, shh, be quiet. Jesus comes close and he, and he loves them. I see, when I look at the Bible, I see a, a God who is kind and gentle in Christ. I see a Jesus who left his position of authority and entered the mess. He wasn't distant from our suffering. He entered it and experienced suffering for us on our behalf. He becomes a servant. He doesn't hold to his power and his authority on the throne, but he gives that up and dies at a wooden cross for my sake. To serve and to love others. This is who he is. I love the quote that says, the cross is the blazing center of God's glory. When you look at the cross, you see God in his fullness, merciful, kind, just, loving. This is my God. It's the God that I worship. And this is the God I need to cling to when my life and my circumstances just don't make sense. The other major thing that I've been taught that God has shown me is that I belong in heaven, in eternity. I try and live my life day to day in light of eternity. Hebrews 6.19 says, The hope of eternity is the anchor for my soul. I see my suffering in light of heaven and where I'm heading. We live in a fallen world. I need to remind you of this. Where evil and sin, they still affect us day by day. We feel its effects. It's our reality now. But I look forward to a time, a reality, where there will be no crying, death, mourning, or pain. And I lift my eyes up to see where I'm going to spend the rest of my days. Colossians 3.1 says, Set your minds on things above. That's where you are now in Christ. It's been secured by Jesus. It's where I belong. And this hope helps me to hold on now. Because I know it's not the end. Suffering and hard times does not have the final say. I know that we are told when Jesus calls me home. And when he does, I will, we will experience a far better far richer, far fuller, far, far purer, a more joyful life that we will shake our heads and wonder why we ever reluctant to leave here. The, the, the teaching of eternity in heaven is, is filled, of, filled with hope and it's a hope that is actually an anchor for our soul now and one we need to cling to more, I believe. Now, I want to, I want to finish up by saying if you struggle or finding things really hard, if you're suffering at the moment, and you can't see God's purpose, you can't see God's character, and you are just walking around the, in the fog, I would say, please come and talk to someone. Come and talk to me if you'd like. One of the purposes of the church as a family here is to walk alongside one another as we weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn, and as we help each other run the race for Jesus as we head to eternity. Don't do it alone. We are here for one another. 
want to leave you with, um, I want to show a video, just a two-minute video to, to finish up. One of, the, one of the great things that I think we have as the church is when we see others who, uh, who experience really hard times, but seeing how they persevere in hard times is huge. Let me show you of a church in a place, in a Kenyan, a place called Garissa, where there was an attack on a college, and the attacker just pointed and just, and just found all the Christians and shot them one by one. 145 are killed in one day. Have a look at the response in this video from the church.